Any moment that lets you just sit back, relax, and enjoy even one second of the day to yourself and taste like pumpkins, that's a moment to look forward to. The McCafe Pumpkin Spice Latte is back. Get a $2 small hotter ice for a limited time. Or try one of our other freshly brewed espresso drinks. From iced caramel macchiatos to caramel frappes to hot mochas to every sweet treat in between. Only at McDonald's. Price and participation may vary. This is She's On Call, a weekly show hosted by ENT specialist Dr. Sajana Chandrasekhar and general surgeon Dr. Marina Kurian. They'll be joined by guest experts to discuss an array of newsworthy medical and health issues. You're invited to ask the doctors anything. The physicians and their guests' views are their own and do not represent any institution. Please contact your doctor for any personal questions. Please hit share and join us live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at She's On Call. Hashtag She's On Call. Please welcome our hosts. Hello, I'm Dr. Sujana Chandrasekhar. I'm an ear, nose, and throat surgeon in New York City and Wayne, New Jersey. I'm Marina Kurian. I'm a general surgeon. I also do minimally invasive surgery and weight loss surgery in New York City. So welcome to She's On Call. This is show 34. Uh, we're very excited to have you here and we're very excited in a few minutes to welcome our guests. Dr. Mikhail Elevitz is a professor in women's health and maternal and child health researcher at the University of Pennsylvania Perelman School of Medicine in Philadelphia. And Dr. Stella Safo is an associate, an assistant professor and HIV primary care physician in New York City with a lot of interest in global health. But first, as you guys know, Suju and I do the news for uh, the past week. And oh my God, blessedly, we are not going to start off the show talking about COVID. We're going to actually talk about the disaster that is happening in the U.S. with this freezing, freezing cold. Hello, climate change. Right. We are the basically 85 percent of the United States was gripped in a in a deep freeze this week. Um, all of the on the graphic that you see, anything that's uh, green, blue, purple is all zero degrees or freezing and below. So zero degrees centigrade and or below. Um, and of course, the South is not at all prepared for this type of weather. Unfortunately, over 50 people have died from the weather event, over 30 of whom were in fact in Texas. Texas really got hit super hard. Um, it's unfortunate, you know, much of our country, like in California, we get mudslides, right? In, in, uh, in the South, there's, uh, there's tornado alley, there's, there's uh, hurricanes. And Texas has seen their fair share of hurricanes. To get this freezing cold, I mean, the Texans have this great meme about, y'all, it's Texas, we get two or three days of snow, and we're going to act like Armageddon's here, and we're going to, you know, hunker down. But this is actually was dreadful. Uh, it was zero-degree weather. There were hypothermia deaths that we're going to talk about. 
Um, and normally you see hyperthermia and deaths from hyperthermia in the older or the extremes of age, old, extremely older or, or very young. And unfortunately in Texas, there was an, an eight-year-old, an 11-year-old that ended up dying uh, of uh, hyperthermia as part of the 30 um, deaths that we attribute in Texas. And you can see some of the common signs of hypothermia. Um, and it is, obviously we all can shiver in the cold, but it's when you're absolutely exhausted, you can't move, you're confused, your hands don't work, uh, and you can have slurred speech and drowsiness. And uh, in infants, it's very different. Yeah, so they can get, obviously, very, as you said, very young and very old can get very hypothermic very quickly. Any temperature, body temperature under 95 degrees um, is cause of for great concern. You know, I have cousins, relatives um, in Texas, and people were putting tents in their home, putting, you know, um, cloth t-shirts bundled up around the windows and doors to prevent any draft and kind of huddling together for body heat. Um, it's really important to remember that we are still in a pandemic. So huddle with the people in your bubble. Um, luckily, we think that this cold streak is ending. Uh, but you know, the, the burst pipes, the unpassable roads, all made this uh, much worse than just a cold event. Um, the other thing you want to look out for if you're outside in the cold, or frankly, inside in the cold with no electricity is frostbite. And frostbite um, can affect uh, the skin relatively quickly. You know, we've talked, Marina, about looking at non-Caucasian skin for skin diseases. And I've looked really hard and it's really hard to find diagrams uh, other than in white skin, but it looks like this. First, your frostbitten skin uh, looks quite red, then it looks very white. And then as there is cell death, um, it actually gets black. So it's really important that you keep your skin covered. Uh, the areas of greatest um, da danger are uh, fingers, toes, nose, and the tops of your ears. So you have to make sure that you're bundled up everywhere. So the other things to be, you know, if, if frostbite isn't enough, Texas is also, and, and I think parts of the South have been also concerned about contaminated water with bursting pipes and, and inability to get to uh, clean water. There was a boil water uh, alert in Texas uh, for these past few days. And, you know, those of us, I mean, I, you know, when I went to India to visit, we'd be on well water and sometimes we would, we would have to boil water depending on where it was coming from. So it can be something that, well, Suju and I might be familiar with it. A lot of people are not. What do you need to do? And this is just a great way of telling you how to, um, uh, what temperature you have to get it to. Uh, but what is it that they say? A, a watched pot never boils, but you still need to keep an eye on it. Yeah. And I think you need to make sure that um, if you're boiling, boil it, boil for a minute. If you can't boil the water, you can actually put in um, bleach, dilute bleach. It's about two or three drops per liter or per uh, quart of water will actually um, uh, sterilize the water and make it safe enough uh, for you to drink. And then, oh my God, we're like the gloom and doom sisters. The one other thing we have to talk to you guys about is carbon monoxide poisoning, because that's another danger if you're using a generator in a closed space, if you're using a space heater. Um, and if you're getting uh, carbon monoxide poisoning, the symptoms 
are um, shown here on the graphic, but you start with a headache and maybe some trouble breathing. You can get chest pain, nausea, vomiting. You can feel dizzy and you can eventually collapse uh, and lose consciousness. So it's really important to be cautious of um, the measures you're using to get warm. This can happen if you are sitting in your car in a closed garage with the car running. Uh, unfortunately, it is a way that people do commit suicide. Um, so uh, it is a tragedy, however it happens. So please stay warm, but be careful. And there are carbon monoxide uh, detectors, probably, hopefully in every home. And uh, make sure you have batteries for them, right? That's something that you have to also do. But, you know, this is the first time we have not let off our show with COVID since we started. June 9th, I believe, was our first one. And so after 34 shows, we started off without it. But the reason is we can talk COVID-19 vaccines with our wonderful guests, right? So we can talk about that and women's health. Uh, and also talk about gender and race equity. So we're really excited again to welcome Dr. McCall Elowitz. She's a professor in women's health and maternal and child health researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, Paramount School of Medicine in Philadelphia, and Dr. Stella Safo, who is an assistant professor, HIV primary care physician and global health leader at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in Manhattan. Welcome, you guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. We're so happy to meet you. Um, I feel like one of the advantages to starting this show was there are people whom I communicate with only on Twitter that I finally get to meet. And okay, we get to meet through a screen, but you know, this is a, you know, the screen is the new handshake, right? So I'm very happy to see both of you, uh, as is Marina. Let's get to COVID because unfortunately, the statistics although they're getting better, are still terrible. The front page of the New York Times has this incredible graphic with dots on it showing the uh, just about 500,000 deaths um, in the United States. We have over a fifth of the world's deaths um, here. So although the cases are getting less and the um, deaths are seem to be um, uh, you know, flattening, um, it is still of concern. And, you know, the magic of, oh, once there's a vaccine, everything disappears um, is obviously not uh, real. So, uh, Stella, Dr. Sappho, maybe you can talk to us a bit as, a, as an infectious disease specialist. Um, what is your guidance now that we're uh, towards the end of February, a year later into the pandemic? Yeah, so I'll, I'll just correct that I'm an HIV primary care doctor, um, which I think puts me in a really interesting space because so much of what we've seen from COVID is that it hits us at all of the cares of medicine where you know everyone from our surgical colleagues to our primary care physicians are fielding questions from individuals about what are we, what, what should we expect? You know, how do we kind of keep ourselves healthy? And, and the thing that I'm seeing now, especially in the HIV world, um, in New York is that we've moved to a phase where we're vaccinating not just individuals who are essential workers or um, are 65 and up, we've now moved to those who are, have chronic illnesses. So it's introduced this question of, does my chronic illness count? Um, and if so, then you have to kind of join the Hunger Games type you know, situation that we have to try to find a vaccine appointment because that's just so difficult, which brings up these really interesting questions of equity around making sure that our very sick folks, like our folks who are older and kind of have a higher risk if they get COVID can still get their vaccines. Um, and so I think to your question of like kind of where are we, what, what should we expect? I think we should expect that we'll continue to vaccinate, 
but that it's going to be a little bit messy and tough. And so it's really helpful to know, you know, what are the conditions that would make me be able to be eligible? And can I go ahead and just work really hard to get those appointments as soon as you can? And th those are great points. And, and um, I think we have a graphic on the vaccines, if we can just pop that up and just let our viewers know. These are um, the different vaccines that are out. And, uh, but in the US, we only have two vaccines. Sujana, you said that someone said to you, I'm waiting, I'm, I wanna get the new vaccine. And you were like, what new <laughs> vaccine? We only have two, like what? Yeah, she, it was actually a nurse. And she said to me, oh, I don't wanna get Pfizer or Moderna. I'm gonna get the other one. I'm like, what other one? Um, so right now we have these two approved, which is the Pfizer and Moderna in the US. In the United, uh, in the European Union and the United Kingdom, there's also AstraZeneca. Um, the Sputnik vaccine is being used in Russia and other countries. And then China has at least two vaccines uh, that are in use. And um, uh, you know, we just read a story that uh, the African Union you know, made a deal to get uh, six or seven million vaccines, and about one and a half million will be there this week, you know, we are we are vaccinating, uh, barring snowstorms and ice storms in the United States, about 1.7 million people per day. Um, the population of the continent of Africa is 1.3 billion, of which a little bit over half are over the age of 16. So yes, 1.5 million vaccines is good, but it is what we might consider a drop in the bucket. Yeah, and that that's a real, real show of the disparity in in healthcare around the world. And obviously, COVID, as we've said many times, Sujana, has really laid bare the gross inequities in our own healthcare system for people, and um, and and where they're located, and what their zip code is, and and it's it's really just dreadful to be part of it, to see it, to really get the wool taken off our eyes, and also feel like there's not a lot we can do, but there's a lot we can do for the future, but there may not be so much we can do right now. It feels like COVID has radicalized us. Like I, I feel like we couldn't have come past this year of COVID and not feel just radicalized, right? We always knew that our health systems had certain kind of care delivery problems. We always knew that um, there were race and you know ethnic disparities within healthcare. We always knew that the, you know, the kind of global North and South were really unequal. But then you look at COVID and COVID has just laid it so bare from who got sicker, who got hospitalized, who died from it, who was able to get testing and now who's getting vaccinated. And I think if we come out of this year and we've learned nothing else, we should learn that COVID was really our wake up call to say we have to fix these systems because as bad as COVID is, the next pandemic that comes that has a higher mortality or is more infectious, we're just not ready. Right. And so there's so much that I think about of like this is our opportunity to build back and to build better um, than than what we have now. So, you know, we have people watching from all over the world and thank you guys so much. We have people listening uh, on Mondays from two to three on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York and WBAI.org. Um, we have people on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter watching us, um, you know.
Dunkin' is putting a whole new spin on pumpkin at Dunkin' with our new pumpkin cream cold brew. Smooth, bold, cold brew topped with velvety pumpkin cream cold foam made with cinnamon and nutmeg spices. And there's more pumpkin for you to love, like the delicious fall classic, our pumpkin spice signature latte. Rich espresso topped with whipped cream, caramel drizzle, and cinnamon sugar. That's how we pumpkin at Dunkin'. Sip into the fall season with the $3 medium pumpkin cream cold brew or pumpkin spice signature latte. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Exclusions apply. Valid on pumpkin spice signature latte only in all cold foam cold Mikhail, I want I want to ask you, can you tell us uh, what's going on with vaccines in pregnancy? Because um, there is so much confusion and perhaps misinformation out there about whether it's safe in before you get pregnant, when you're pregnant, when you're nursing. So I come at COVID from a little bit of a different lens, both as a 53-year-old woman with a family and who takes care of patients who wants us all to be protected. But as a maternal fetal medicine expert, it is, it's difficult because we've been put in the place of having to guess for our patients, our pregnant patients again, right? So as Stella alluded to, the disparities and the inequity as far as who gets the vaccine and who's at risk for severe COVID is not new, right? This has been true for diseases for decades and centuries, if you will. And the same goes for pregnant people. We have not valued women or pregnant people. And we have had this very paternalistic view where they are not included in clinical trials under the um, assumption that we are protecting them. But we're not protecting them, we're hurting them. So when any of us here think about getting the vaccine, we can look to that trial and say, I can see myself in that vaccine, in that trial, right? Someone like me, my general age was in that trial. Pregnant women were excluded from almost from every except maybe one or two clinical trials looking at therapeutics or vaccines for COVID. And therefore, when we say it's offered to pregnant women, we're doing that under autonomy, but without informed knowledge or without preclinical and clinical data to help guide those pregnant people on whether to get the vaccine or not. So what are you doing, though? What are you telling your patients? Because I've seen it every which way. I've had... Um, pregnant patients um, that are that are just coming in, lay people that are coming in and have been able to get the vaccine, but they're healthcare workers. Um, but then I've had others hesitant to take it because they are pregnant. So it's been, it's been difficult because again, we're guessing, right? We're guessing about what's best. So the American College of OBGYN and the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine have both come out with statements urging the FDA, which the FDA followed, not to exclude pregnant people under the EUA. So under the EUA from the FDA, pregnant people can be offered the vaccine. So I'm just going to say, Michal, EUA means emergency use authorization. Yes, thank you. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, thank you. So under this emergency use authorization, pregnant people can be offered the vaccine. But this is where it gets difficult. So we are, we are urging and promoting autonomy for pregnant people, but they don't have the same preclinical data that non-pregnant people have. So it becomes a risk-benefit discussion, but a really difficult one, right? So the risk is, as with other viral illnesses, infection with COVID, especially later in pregnancy, poses significant morbidity and mortality to pregnant people, likely more than is than we see in non-pregnant people in the same age match range. So they're at greater risk of disease, but then you're left on the other hand with this vaccine that we know is really effective, but we don't know how it works in pregnant people, 
right? We, we're assuming it's as effective, but we really don't know. But what we also don't know is how that vaccine affects the maternal fetal dyad, how whether it can cross, whether it is, whether it, it, there's any harm. So we don't believe there is, but there's, but we're guessing. And so it is very difficult as a pregnant patient. And what we've done individually is really say, so what is your risk of being exposed to COVID? Are you able to do practices that will ensure less risk of exposure to COVID? Where do you work? Where does your family members go or work and what is their risk? And so it really becomes this very individualized risk benefit discussion about whether they should take the vaccine or not. You know, in terms of mitigation and trying to um, decrease the rise, as we stated earlier, certainly in the U.S., we're seeing that that we've peaked and we're coming back down on this second, third wave. I don't even know what to call it. But when you look at other countries, and I want to bring up India, you know, and, and you know, we all predicted, I, I mean, if you, Sujo and I talked early on, you know, we were worried about India. The Indians were worried about India that lived there. Um, and yet look what's happened. When you look at where are the cases um, in India, we expect because they have 1.3 billion um, people in India, I believe. And we expected it to be so high and it'd be way more than the US. And in fact, it's not, it's been a significantly flattened curve and it's been confusing. Uh, and everyone is wondering what could it be? Why is it? And we have another graph that shows that, like what could it be? What are some of the proposed etiologies of why we are seeing a lower death rate uh, in India and even a lower transmission rate really than we've seen in the US. Stella, so do you, you want to weigh in or? Yeah, it's definitely something that I think we've, we've questioned and asked about quite a bit, thinking about some of these um, international sites that don't have the resources um, that we do in the U.S. and what will happen when COVID hits them. My family is from Ghana, and it's something that we've been following really closely to see what's happening um, in that country. And what we have seen, in, just like in India, is the, the rates have definitely risen, but it hasn't done what it's done here, which is this kind of, you know, just... Um, just almost like a vertical spike up. Um, and, you know, it's so interesting to me uh, what I saw on the slide. One of the things that we have been discussing is just the population that's getting infected. So obviously if your population that gets infected is kind of more able to be infected. And so, um, you know, as we said, looking at things like um, age, uh, chronic illness, et cetera, that, that may explain why we're not seeing the, the numbers, certainly from the kind of mortality you know, perspective, but it doesn't really make sense why we're not seeing just the numbers of infections that we might expect to see, especially given the realities of you know, um, things like having markets. You know, pe my family still shops, goes to the market. Markets are so crowded. How is it that COVID isn't spreading as much? I think people are looking at other questions around, could it be the climate? Um, could it be that these, you know, these viruses kind of are not as hardy in certain warmer um, areas, you know, so, so, so unclear, I think, and we're still figuring that out. But can we all just acknowledge how amazing it is that we have some good news? Because it'd be so different. And I think it'd be very difficult for us all to be sitting here talking about vaccinations in our country, you know, if we were looking at rates that were just exponentially rising in places like India and Ghana and others, knowing that vaccine rates over there would be even lower, you know, um, than it ideally should be. So this is this is, you know, if Mother Nature's mad at us and has sent us COVID as our pestilence, you know, I'm just, I'm glad that we can look at this and see some silver lining of something good. And, and the hope is that it holds out. You know, I think, um, I think you're right that we must look at the silver lining. We also have to say 
it's a brand new disease and we're as quickly as we're learning about it, it's changing or the data is changing and we're doing our best, um, as Michal said, to interpret that data for our patients in a way that's safe for them. You know, we get a, we have people watching from all over and opining from all over. Thank you so much for watching us. Uh, we are live on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. We're live on scroll.in uh, with our Indian audience. Uh, and we will be on uh, WBAI every Monday, 2 to 3 p.m. But um, we do get a lot of vaccine questions. And one of our previous guests, Dr. Nina Shapiro, uh, wrote in Forbes this week about the finding of axillary or armpit lymph nodes or masses um, after getting the shot and how um, that was caused, people who were getting their mammograms or breast cancer screenings um, were not understanding what was related to the injection and what was related to perhaps ongoing disease. Michal, do you have advice for your patients about when to schedule their mammograms um, in relation to the vaccine? So in pregnant patients, right, we don't routinely do mammogram, but I can tell you from my own experience, I went from my yearly mammogram, which unfortunately I delayed due to COVID and I recommend no one doing that. So get your mammogram on time. And it actually was right before the recommendation came out. And she asked me when I got my vaccine and I was, yeah, I was like, you know, at this date, I said, of curiosity, why are you asking me? And the minute before she could say it, I reached under my right arm and I felt my own notes that had been there since the vaccine. And it instantly made sense. And it was right before the recommendation. And I think it's, you know, one of the things, again, that we're learning in COVID. And so I think it's really important for this to be known as a public health announcement more to women who are, first of all, to still get it, but to be cognizant that this can be a side effect so that we don't induce, we don't keep women from getting their mammograms, but we also don't want to induce unneeded fear and <coughs> And so I think the broadcasting now of this recommendation is really important. And just again, one of the other things we're learning about COVID and the vaccines and just general health. And as I think Stella pointed out, everything we're learning this year, we need to take from the lens of how does this apply to not just the next pandemic, but just to health and disease in general as we care for women. You know, Camille Clare, Dr. Camille Clare, uh, who was one of our guests early on um, says, the, the recommendation is to delay the mammogram for four to six weeks, if you can, after the vaccine. But obviously, if there is a concern, nobody wants to delay a cancer diagnosis. So um, I think, you know, being logical and rational um, helps. Uh, but maybe let's, let's turn a bit to HIV. So um, uh, all of us, maybe three of us um, were in training at the time of the uh, HIV AIDS outbreak in uh, the world and in the United States. Bizarrely, Dr. Anthony Fauci was the face of the NIDCD, uh, I'm sorry, NI, uh, AIH um, then as he is now for COVID uh, in 2021. Um, but um, where are we uh, with HIV and AIDS now, uh, Stella? Um, what can people understand about that disease, which is ongoing in the world? So HIV, um, I think, has really served as a blueprint for us to understand how to approach COVID. So not to bring everything back to COVID, but one of the things that was really comforting to see is a lot of the folks, a lot of the pioneers that worked in HIV care, 
really stood up um, and were able to help around COVID around two areas in particular. One, the speed with which we were able to get the vaccine and kind of work on making sure we were dealing with that. And two, the importance of not stigmatizing uh, behaviors around COVID. Because as you guys remember, so much of HIV that prevented people from getting tested and getting care was this fear of carrying this diagnosis. And so a lot of folks in the HIV world have talked about how, you know, yes, it's problematic when people don't wear masks. And yes, it's, you know, really discouraging to see people having these big, large parties. But if you're using a stigma-based or a shaming-based approach, it doesn't work for an infectious disease. And we've seen that from HIV. The good news, again, we're gonna make today about some areas of good news, is that the HIV crisis um, has really not been something that has been made worse by COVID. We were very afraid that our HIV patients that had um, compromised immune systems would just be decimated by you know, this, this new pandemic. And that has not been the case. Their cases of infection, mortality, kind of all across the board, really do mimic that of the general population. And yet HIV continues to be a disease that, that spreads um, worldwide um, and, and that unfortunately should not continue to spread as much as it is because we have the ability to use medications like pre-exposure prophylaxis to essentially prevent you even if you are exposed to HIV from getting it. And so this comes to an area that I think COVID is teaching us, which is that the way that we, did, we have the solutions is just about getting those solutions to the people that need them. And so um, there's a lot, I think, in the HIV world that we're very proud that we've done and gotten to and that we are excited, especially when COVID calms down, to keep pushing and keep kind of driving forward. So Let's can you tell us a bit about what PrEP is, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis? Like, what is it? I, and I know it's not just a pill. It's a whole system, right? Um, and who gets it? And, and why are people not getting it when they should? Like, is this yeah. something that college students should be taking or other, uh, you know, at-risk youth? Or is it predominantly for one um, type of sexual encounter? Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic question. And so the, the, the kind of uh, history of PrEP was that it was used for um, what's considered high-risk high sexual behaviors. Um, so, um, you know, some cases of men who have sex with men, transgender um, populations that, you know, or individuals involved with sex work, that kind of potential to make it seem like it's only a certain group is something that I think many of us HIV advocates have really kind of pushed and fought against. Why aren't we talking about it more with sexually active, you know, um, women and in heterosexual relationships? And so the, the counseling that I give for my patients is that if you're going to be in a situation where you have, you know, more than I would say one consistent sexual partner and you have the potential to have unprotected sex, so that's sex without a condom, um, you should think about PrEP. And there's two ways to take PrEP. Um, you can take PrEP consistently every day. And what PrEP is, it's one medication. It's Truvada or Descovy. Um, and it's a medicine that you take uh, every day. Um, and it will prevent you from getting HIV if you're exposed to it. Or if you know that you're going to have a sexual encounter that is high risk, um, let's say, you know, you know that you're going to go party on Friday night, there's a way you can take something called on-demand PrEP, where you take a, a certain number of doses before and after that encounter, just because you know it's going to be one encounter. But as you're listening to this, if you're interested in it, definitely talk to your primary care provider about it to make sure you have the right information, to make sure you get kind of, you know, um, the, the medication the right way, and to make sure you get tested to um, prevent you from getting other sexually transmitted infections. Because sometimes when people take PrEP, they think, I'm good. I can just go out and just do whatever. But you have to really be in the care of a provider to make sure that you're safe kind of all, all around. When you get Xfinity Internet, Flex is included free. And finding what to watch on TV is now as easy as popcorn. Show me my favorites. Yes! 
live soccer. This is how easy it is to find my favorite content, all in one place. And for Xfinity Internet customers, it all starts at free with Xfinity Flex. This is a way better way to watch. Learn how to get a great offer on Xfinity Internet. Plus, add a free Flex 4K streaming box. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. You might have noticed a change in your neighborhood lately. Yep, Sprint stores are now T-Mobile stores. Now that Sprint is T-Mobile, you get more coverage, value, and benefits than ever before. We've invested billions to bring our 5G from big cities to small towns across America. And great coverage is just the start. From high-speed mobile hotspot data to weekly deals and giveaways, our customers get tons of great benefits. Head to your new T-Mobile store to learn more. Qualifying service and capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain plan or features. See T-Mobile.com. So that, I mean, that, that slide that we had up, which talked about prep, it's also important to get tested, especially if you're having unprotected sex and, and to look for treatment, um, which is also very important. Let's talk a little bit um, about what does it mean to be, uh, have uh, undetectable levels, right? Like I've, I've operated on patients, I just operated on someone the other day and she has undetectable levels of HIV. Can we just describe that? And, and actually it's a testament to what has been done in um, with HIV and the research that we are at this point where these medications can really create undetectable disease. I mean, the field of HIV should give all of us so much hope. Like I had a patient say to me, he was very sad. He said, you know, it makes me sad that in a year they came up with a vaccine for COVID and HIV has been here for more than 30 years. We don't have a vaccine. Um, that is true. HIV is a very tough disease to kind of get a vaccine for, for a number of reasons. However, the, what we've done in HIV care is unreal. It's unreal. We went from people taking literally 18 pills a day to not having the kinds of, uh, you know, like injections where you don't have to go and get an, uh, HIV medications for three months. You get an injection and you could be good for, for a period of months, right? Like it's, it's amazing what has happened. And so we're at the point now where studies have shown us that if you take your HIV medicines consistently and you're undetectable, essentially you can't transmit HIV. So, you know, undetectable equals untransmittable, which means that uh, serodiscordant partners, so partners where let's say I have HIV and my partner doesn't have HIV, we used to tell them it doesn't matter, wear condoms consistently, as far as you have HIV, always use condoms, you know, just be very careful. Now we can tell those partners, if you, the person with HIV takes your HIV medicine, you will not be able to transmit it. Do you know how freeing that is for so many patients? Just to know that they can take these medicines and be okay, essentially, and be safe themselves and, and not transmit it. And exactly as you said, undergo surgeries and undergo procedures without really having to worry about the impact of their disease. I mean, the field of HIV has done something incredible, taken a death sentence um, and really let people live in a way where I'm not treating my HIV patients for diabetes and hypertension and worrying more about that than their HIV. And so it really is a, a success story in medicine. That's a success story in Western medicine, right? Like, unfortunately, yes. when yes. we look yes. at that original slide, that's not what's happening in Africa. And, and, I'm, and it seems like that's where the majority of the disease is being diagnosed. Um, but it, are there other countries or other regions that are seeing as much HIV and AIDS? Because it's 20, no, actually, you see on the graph, it's 22.8 million yeah. in Africa. And that seems to me that that is really uh, world health failure. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's it, the burden of disease in Sub-Saharan Africa for HIV. Um, it's why things like PEPFAR um, that came under the Bush administration was so important, because I've just described to you that if you give someone adequate medications for life, their HIV is well treated, they're okay. So the question becomes, we have those 22 million that are infected. What are we as a global community doing to make sure that they have access to medications? And what are we doing to prevent transmission? And there's two ways. If you keep everyone who has HIV undetectable, you prevent that way. But also, if you give people PrEP, you also prevent that way. So I think that what you've said is exactly right. It's a success story in the Western world. We should feel very happy and proud. Now, let's take that energy and go and make sure that our brethren all around the world are just as safe. And it's why managing COVID matters so much. Once we get COVID under control, we can all focus on our day jobs. We can go back to the advocacy that we have to go back to because every day that we're talking about almost 500,000 dead, we can't, I can't have the conversations I wanna have with my you know, local and, and state politicians around like, what are we doing to make sure that people back home are really protected um, from HIV and other you know, communicable diseases? So I think you're absolutely right to point out that distinction. So Michal, as we're talking about HIV and AIDS, you can see in that graphic about half of the people who have this uh, condition or disease are women. And um, so can you talk to us about the advances that have been made in reducing maternal to fetal transmission? So if the mother is HIV positive? So as you guys, I grew up in the age of the pandemic of HIV and we saw pregnant women and talk about ethnic and racial disparities. We would, there were so many women who went undiagnosed and who suffered because we were not approaching it in a more equitable way. But what also we saw in the very beginning is over a third of babies would be born to HIV positive moms and have the disease themselves. One of the first trials, the 076 trial way back when, um, showed that if we actually gave AZT, which as Stella alluded to, we've come so far from that really reduce transmission to about 8%. But as Stella mentioned, the idea of a very undetectable viral load is the best thing for health, not surprisingly, both in pregnancy as it is in non-pregnancy. So the lower the viral load, the risk is less than 2% of perinatal transmission, if not lower, to the baby, which has made it just unreal. As Stella alluded to, the fact that that risk, that that mother does can have a child and not and know that she is not passing that disease on to her baby is tremendous. But I would also take a step back and say, just by promoting women's health pre-pregnancy, that if we can get them to an undetectable viral load, as so alluded to with all these different medications, then they can both have a relationship and be able to have a pregnancy that is much less risk for both her and her baby. Michal, um, one of the things that you do in all the things that you do, are uh, you focus on sort of what we say bench to bedside research or translational research. Can you just describe that for our, our, our listeners and our viewers? So what I've done for the last two decades is try to look at the problems we have in adverse reproductive or pregnancy outcomes. And again, because just in general, um, my stance is that women are, are pretty undervalued in our society, both from a research and a clinical perspective, that we just do not have a lot of data on understanding normal changes in pregnancy, which means understanding pathological changes in pregnancy is really quite difficult. So the lens that we've taken is to look at what happens in pregnancy 
first address it at the bench. And by the bench, we mean doing animal and in vitro studies to kind of figure out the most basic mechanisms that underlie both health and disease in pregnancy. And then we take what we learn at the bench and we apply it to the bedside. So either by through discovery methods, looking at biomarkers or by these really large translational cohorts where we recruit women in, follow them clinically, as well as take diverse biospecimens so we can begin to ask questions about what changes in a normal pregnancy, what changes when there's an adverse outcome, and what changes just because of the society and the world that they live in. And that's really this kind of translational research approach we take to advance understanding of health and disease in pregnancy and actually before pregnancy and for that woman's lifespan. So, you know, um, Stella, you wrote a couple of articles, one of which was the um, the finding that women who are HIV positive miss clinic appointments for pain. And uh, I don't really understand what that, why that would happen. Yeah, I just wanna say very quickly that I think one of the things that is so um, incredible about someone like Mahal is that when you spend a lot of time doing translational research, those folks tend to kind of stay, you know, by by the bench, if you will. Um, it's amazing to have someone who's both, um, I think, uh, that level of a scientist who's also an advocate. And I just want to call that out because we don't see that um, often, I would say, in medicine. And so just thank you for all that you do. Um, in terms of, of pain, I mean, the, the, that, that work was really interesting. We looked at a population of women um, and uh, found that those individuals tended to have, so, so pain was an independent factor um, that led to missed clinic visits among individuals with HIV. Um, and it was a multitude of reasons. It was related to overall functionality. So the ability to feel like you could make the appointments. Um, and then also just kind of the logistics of making and getting to a doctor's appointment, like organizing transportation, et cetera. Um, it brings up this really interesting question, though, of what we just talked about, which is the importance of making sure that you're undetectable. And how do you know that you're undetectable? Well, you come to a doctor like me every three months and we run your labs. So if you have individuals who have chronic pain who are missing their appointments, that is really concerning because if they're not undetectable, they may not know it. Um, and they may be at higher risk of spreading HIV. And so it, this, this work that, that we did um, really made us think through the importance of treating pain adequately. And treating pain adequately is hard at a time where everyone's talking about the opioid crisis and over treatment. Um, and yet being able to treat individuals' pain adequately has such an impact on so many other health outcomes, including access to HIV care, which has a public health impact by um, you know, impacting whether someone is uh, transmittable or not with their HIV. And so it just brings back this, this idea that I think all of us have lived being people and people in medicine, which is that it's all deeply interconnected and you cannot pull one string without somehow affecting the other parts of how someone gets their care delivery. We wanna thank you guys for your, your clinical acumen and, and just discussing all these topics with us, but we do wanna switch gears a little bit this past few weeks have been a little bit rough for women in medicine, in particular women of color in medicine, in academic medicine. We wanted to highlight two situations. One is uh, Dr. Princess Dinar, who was uh, let go from her university position, really for matters of race, and Dr. Uh, Aisha Khoury, who was at Kaiser Permanente Medical School, and she was asked to... Um, talk to a group of students about racism and implicit bias in healthcare, and then she was fired after she told of her own experiences as examples. And Dr. Dinar was at Tulane Medical School in New Orleans as the residency program director, 
and she was let go for advocating for students who were experiencing pretty gross examples of bias and discrimination. And there's a lot more that was said there, but we wanted to talk to you about that. And, and many of you guys watching or listening, you might've seen that hashtag DNR Tulane that was circulating on Twitter. And that was do not rank Tulane, telling uh, prospective um, applicants for either medical school or residency not to apply to Tulane because of their practices. And what's interesting to me, as I mentioned to Sujana when this came up, Tulane's in New Orleans and Louisiana is a, uh, has a very large uh, African-American population, but also a lot of ethnic diversity as well. So it was just odd that this was happening at, at an institution like that. One that my daughter, by the way, almost went to. And I, and I liked it now. Well, I want to say, and, and the Kaiser Permanente Medical School, where Dr. Corey was let go from, is actually was formed so that um, underrepresented uh, people from underrepresented groups could attend medical school so that we can see doctors who look more like us and we can move that needle forward. So maybe Stella will ask uh, for your opinion on what is going on and how do we intervene here? Yeah, I just want to draw attention to um, the slide that you guys put up that if you look at Dr. Denner's case, it says uh, both race and gender discrimination. And I just want to call that out because I think as women and women of color, those two issues are so interconnected. You know, I'm a black, I'm a black person and I'm a woman. And the, the, the ways in which I experience medicine, those two are al always intertwined. We often will talk, and I think we're going to have this conversation about racism, um, but I just want to, I want to kind of slip in there just how much sexism runs, runs, you know, kind of um, right next to this. Parallel. And Exactly, and and the 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 this really comes, I think, to um, the reality of medicine of the the hierarchies and where power is held. Um, and you know, it, for for the sake of being brief, because I could really go on about this, I think one of the things that we see here is that many of these medical institutions, as teaching hospitals, are located in predominantly black. Latino, you know, um, environments, um, and that's that's across the board. My medical institution here in New York, you know, its big hospital is is there. If you look at, ask yourself as you're listening, who your medical, you know, um, institution primarily treats, right? Like, I think that's an important thing. So, so that we don't think that Tulane is fully unique in 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 the way that it may seem. And I think that what we're seeing here is that the individuals that are in power in medicine, um, unfortunately, haven't been held to account. And we have these professional bodies that are supposed to help us do that. And I think there's a question that we all have of, you know, when something like an Aisha Curry happens or, you know, a Princess Denner happens, or in my own case of gender and race discrimination happens, how do we show up as providers to support and help these individuals? Because unfortunately, these women are the canary in the coal mine right here. Like if this is happening to these people, can you imagine what's happening to the BIPOC patients at these hospitals that don't have the degrees, the know-how, the lawyers to make any noise? I mean, we should all be really scared and we should be scared most for our patients that are going through these systems. And especially for, I think, our BIPOC um, you know, women uh, patients that are, are really deeply marginalized. You know, um, when it happens, and I, I will tell you my a bit of my story, when it happens, you actually don't know 
what about you is the problem? And that's the intersectionality problem, right? So I didn't know if I was actually a bad person, if my, you know, my imposter came out and said, oh my goodness, I've been, you know, hiding the fact that I'm a terrible doctor for so long and they finally figured it out. Um, I didn't know if it was because I was a woman. I didn't know if it be it's because my name is difficult to pronounce. I didn't know if I was outspoken, uh, people who have um, something else, maybe they have hearing impairment, maybe they use um, an assistive device to walk, like you just don't know what part of you um, is the part that being is being called out. And it's very, very lonely. And you're very afraid to speak out because we don't make sprockets, right? When I die, I'm just gonna die. And hopefully I will have taken care of some patients well along the way, but there's gonna be nothing there that says, oh, look, she made this sprocket and it's a great sprocket, right? So I think, um, I think the hierarchy in um, academic medicine and, and in medicine in general, uh, you're right, it, it hurts our patients, it hurts us because it makes us um, doubt ourselves. And it hurts our patients because again, they need to be treated with the utmost respect at all times. And I and I know there's a there's a slide we have up about what is it to be an anti-racist, um, you know, which is a very big buzzword uh, that we have now. But an anti-racist doesn't mean you don't have any isms inside you. It means that you recognize that you can have implicit bias within you and you work hard to uh, prevent that from uh, informing how you act and behave. And Michal, I know that you started a really uh, powerful group to include women in, in places of power. And maybe you can talk to us about that. And, I, and Michal, just one other thing, like I think that Stella brought up this great point, like when you're out there and you're all by yourself, who do you turn to? And you know, for these two individuals, if they turn to their colleagues, there'd be a fair amount of fear of repercussion, et cetera. And so I think it's wonderful that you have a national system you know, set up for, for some outreach. And we wanna definitely hear more about that. So I just, I just wanna recognize what all four of us are sitting here saying, right? That you just said that, are you being critiqued because you're outspoken? So I wanna just take a moment to pause on that, right? We are worried about being outspoken, right? We are physicians, we care for patients, we do research, we want to make a difference and we're worried about being outspoken, right? We're all worried about it. And I think we have for so long known about these inequities, known about sexism, known about racism, and there is no one to go to and there is no one to help us stop being afraid. And there is no one there to help us navigate what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to feel. And it's, it's incredibly lonely and it's incredibly demoralizing. So I think many of us, and I'm sure all four of us here, as well as every, so many people listening, we felt this way for decades. And what has finally lit the fire, if you will, so it was already smoldering, right? But what lit it was the realization, which we should have come to decades ago, was that inequity, both sexism and racism in our stakeholders, in the doctors and the physicians and the scientists, unequivocally affects our research and our clinical care. So if we don't have a diversity of the people seeing patients, if we don't have a diversity of 
people doing the science, our patients will suffer. And as you see with Dr. Denar and with other physicians, as they leave medicine, more women of color are not gonna go into medicine. More women of color are gonna leave medicine, which means our patients are not gonna see themselves. Our science is not gonna reflect the totality of diversity that it should to make the best for healthcare. So along with some amazing colleagues, we formed the Women's Health Collaborative in July of 2020 with the idea that we needed to break down silos in women's health and in, and in women's health research and bring people together so that we could empower and foster diversity and equity across the fields of women's health in hopes that we could really start to be a place of support, but also to affect meaningful change. This is a great article that, that you posted. And, um, you know, we've all talked about imposter syndrome. It was mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, I think Sujana mentioned it, you know, um, I don't generally suffer from it actually, but every once in a while, <laughs> every that. once in a while, you guys could feel that, right? You're like, yeah, she is not suffering. But every <laughs> once in a while I have it. And, um, but it, it, it's, I, I don't think men have it as much. Um, and it's maybe it's because of the way we're raised. I don't know. Like, I feel like if I just look at my kids um, and I'm not supposed to talk about them, but I do all the time anyway, um, that my son doesn't really doubt himself very often. My daughter is a little more like I, I, I always said, like my only gift to my children can be like self-esteem. If they had really great self-esteem, I'd be, I, I will have accomplished everything I wanted to do as a mother. Right. And I feel like sometimes she can feel a little more hesitant than he is or a little doubt herself. She may not show it, but it's there, you know? And so it's, I, I, I want you to discuss imposter syndrome and, and how we can get around it. But I do feel that it's something that's like sort of built into whether it's our education or something that it gets out. You know what? It's all, you know, we, I wish we have a graphic and you know, there's self doubt, I think is very healthy. But imposter syndrome happens really when the circumstance around you takes that self-doubt and really um, makes it toxic, makes it uh, um, unable to function. And I, you know, Harvard Business Review said, stop telling people they have imposter syndrome. Stop telling women we have imposter syndrome. Um, you know, make our workplace uh, inclusive for us. So maybe Michal, you can talk to this a little bit. So I have counseled myself and all my mentees for years about how to fight the imposter syndrome, what they can do to have more self-actualization and self-esteem. And I have to tell you, it's a bunch of crap. <laughs> so, and I just, and you know, reluctantly, um, I have to admit all, and look, it is about self-doubt and not just about self-doubt, it's actually just about questioning where our strength and our weaknesses are and what we choose to build on. But, and I, tweeted this yesterday or two days ago that imposter syndrome is not imposter syndrome. It is the result of longstanding societal sexism, right? And internalized misogyny. That is what imposter syndrome is, right? There is no reason Marina, myself, Stella, or you should have any reason to have imposter syndrome. And yet we do. And so we have to start blame. We have to stop blaming women, right? It's just another way to blame women. Okay. You didn't do it as well. And it's your fault. And by the way, now question yourself and we really need to start taking the lens, and I have two daughters as well, and start asking, what about society? What about our educational system? What about the medical system fosters this? 
because what it does, it keeps women from making more of a difference, right? We are actually hindering ourselves by continuing this narrative of imposter syndrome. So my new take is get rid of imposter syndrome and just call it what it is. It's internalized misogyny and sexism. That's what we're suffering from. That's going to be our tweet too. <laughs> Stella, what, what do you say? I, I just wanted to add, you know, I think that the, bringing it back to the um, examples of black women leaving medicine, part of what happens as well that causes self-doubt or the manifestation of this internalized misogyny is that you don't have examples of people who you can look to, right? Like the only examples that we will have are people who are so perfect and so extremely kind of like, you know, they did everything by the book um, that it feels like you can't achieve that level, right? Whereas I think a lot of men and white men have lots of examples of individuals that have made mistakes and been allowed to keep their role or that are mediocre in some way and yet somehow rise in the ranks. You know, that there's the saying that, you know, uh, if you're a black person in medicine, you have to be twice as good for half as much. And that, that goes kind of across, you know, that's like a very common saying across um, professions. But that what that feeling does is it makes you think, am I twice as good? Because if I'm not, I'm not deserving. And so I, I think that you're absolutely right, Mahal. It's this internalization of the systemic, you know, abuse that the world basically, you know, is doing to us and making us feel like we're less than. And then we've named it something fancy that we go by when really what we should be doing is saying, how do we dismantle these systems? Well, I think one way is calling things out. So Marina talked about this article that Michal uh, and her colleagues wrote. Uh, there was a think tank about pregnancy, right? Yeah. There's a think tank about a woman's issue. Yes, it's a societal issue. Yes, it's a family issue. Tell us what was wrong with it. So, um, and I would just, I, I need to take a moment and pause and say, calling things out is really not that easy. I got flat back mm. from that. I got pushback from that article. I got pushback from societies that I was not being supportive and a team player, right? Things that I've heard kind of- Not a team player. What right. is that? Right. Oh, and now I hear it all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Professionalism, right? I'm not- prof I, I call things out. I say things. And what, what institutions in the medical system need to separate is that if we call things out, they should listen and then say, we hear you and we're going to address it. But instead, there's this- this imperative to squash it. And by squashing it, they're squashing women, they're squashing women of color and they're squashing ideas. So it'd be so much better if instead of saying we're calling it out, saying let's hear the truths and let's find a way to address them. So the problem with that article was exactly what we just talked about. It lacked diversity in the stakeholders and in the authorship, which mm -hmm. ultimately, as we can expect now, affected the diversity in thought. Mm -hmm. So it was a very focused on an omics genetics point of view in looking at pregnancy over the next two decades without really considering the mom and the fetal dyad as, as both individuals and as a group. But it also neglected what we know so true now is that how we live and experience things, especially how women of color experience racism, undoubtedly contributes to the disparity in so many of the OB outcomes or re adverse reproductive outcomes we witness. And the article really just did not take that lens. And so it missed this really important point both from a science perspective and a sociological perspective on how we can improve maternal and fetal health. So I have to tell you guys that I stood up at a conference about four years, three and a half years ago. And I said <clears throat> at the microphone, and it's hard to say it, as you said, Mikhail, it's very hard to say it. I said, congratulations on an excellent mantle. 
A panel is a men's only panel. And this is disrespectful to the diversity of our membership. And then I sat down before my legs buckled. And the silence was deafening, but then it was like a nuclear blast. Bam, there was this huge applause from the men and women. And as a result of me being that outspoken, painful individual, our societies have no manals rules in the, in the meeting since then. So I think it is horrible to have to be that person who has to speak out, but when we can, we can actually make those differences and make medicine and our societies better. So I agree, and what I would urge everyone listening is don't leave it to the four people on the screen right now. Don't leave it to the one person at your institution who speaks up, right? If more people, it would be less calling out and more speaking truths in how do we change and make improvements. Right now, too many people are letting a few people be the ones who speak out or who call out. And it's, it's not fair, it's not equitable. More men and women across the board, especially those in position of power, need to say this isn't okay. Not that the institution is awful, not that this is awful, but just recognize where the weaknesses and the limitations are and be willing to say, we acknowledge them. We see them and here is how we're gonna make a difference. Here's how we're gonna prove it. And we're gonna keep telling you whether we succeed or not, because it's important to us to be equitable. Right, so he for she is a great way. And actually, um, I think, that Sri Srinivasan, our executive producer, actually coined the term mantle, and I've used it. And, and one of my really good dear friends, older white guy, he was like, Marina, mantle, really? I'm like, hey, a guy came up with it, not me, but I think it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, and, and the pushback is always people saying, well, you know, we want experts up there talking. I'm like, and I thought, you know what, that is true. But then what I realized as I was listening to you guys in these past five minutes is that I hear such interesting perspectives from different people that get up, right? It, it's not the same straight, boring talk when somebody else comes up. And I think that that's the thing that we have to embrace. And that is what diversity is about because we all can see things from different angles, just as you said about the maternal fetal dyad and introducing that into the discussion, which you know might've been the touchy-feely aspect of it, but it wasn't really touchy-feely. It's what you do. You take care of maternal fetal Diet. So that's the thing. So anyway, we are sadly, sadly out of time. We want to thank you guys so much for joining us. It's been an amazing discussion. I hope our viewers and our listeners really appreciate it. Again, we are live on Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And, uh, and also we are replayed on WBAI on Mondays at two o'clock. So I want to thank you so much, Mikhail Elevitz and, uh, and, uh, Stella Safo. By the way, Stella, I was like, I love both Suju and I love your um, Twitter handle at Amastar. I love it. <laughs> um, next week, we are going to talk about children's emotional, physical, and educational health. We have the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, Dr. Lee Beers, and a nationally acclaimed school nurse, uh, Robin Kogan. Please join us then. Please let your friends know. And if you missed most, some of this show, catch us on the replay. Bye. You did it. You woke up today. You even got out of bed. You deserve a reward. We can't all be morning people, but we can all get McDonald's for breakfast. 
Right now, mix and match a Chicken McGriddles or a McChicken Biscuit for just 3 bucks. Order ahead on the Mickey D's app. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Mobile order and pay at participating McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life gets more magical when you dream. So dream of a Disney cruise filled with magic and wonder. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line.